All right. Find your sermon outline there in your bulletin, and let's open our Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, please. Chapter 3. You'll find that on page 1896 in that book rack Bible. It's great to have every Bible open. Everybody looking at Scripture this morning. As you're finding your way there, I want to encourage you to take notes. I'm a kind of guy that, uh, I don't know, everybody does it differently, but I encourage people to take notes. And this last week I was encouraged that a young 10-year-old named Owen, his father sent me a picture of his son. 10-year-old took taking notes in church. So this was a few weeks ago. We'll show you the notes. These are the notes a 10-year-old took in church. So he's you know, he's filling the blanks and he's got, he's listening and he's putting down, that was when we opened the series. And then, you know, he's so brilliant that as he's taking notes, he also drew a picture of me and, and there's me <laughs> and uh, pretty good resemblance actually, you know, the glasses, the goatee, a little more hair actually than I actually have. But anyway, it's, uh, I thought that was great. So, oh, and thank you for uh, that and for any of you that are listening and taking notes and engaging with the content of God's word. It's awesome. We finish our little brief exposition in 2 Peter today. We've only been here for a few weeks, but we've been learning some critical reminders for living godly. And I don't know about you, but in the world we live in, we need to be reminded every day about what it means to live godly. And that's what this book is about. It's about reminding us to live godly. And so far, these reminders have gone something like this. First of all, God wants us to remember that he, he gives Uh, secondly, that he speaks, thirdly, that he warns, fourthly, that he protects, and today we come to the final installment in this series on that God promises, and I'm going to cut right to the chase and say that not only does God promise, but he keeps his promises. I mean, all of us at one time or another have made promises that we've not kept, or we have been given promises that were not kept, and that is disappointing. Broken promises are tough to handle. But God is the only one who keeps all of his promises. And the psalmist says in Psalm 145, 13, we can read it out loud together with me. Here we go. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. Think about that. That, sh- that should encourage all of us today that God never, ever does not come through with his promises and keeping his promises. So today we've got a lot of ground to cover. It's going to be amazing to look at. And so we're going to just jump right into the text. We're going to tackle the entire third chapter because it has one central theme. It's the promise. Let's follow along. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following after their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised ever since our fathers died? Everything goes on as it has since the creation, the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. And everyone said, amen. 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 A couple of things that you might have noticed as we jump into this text. Four times in this little section, we read the words, dear friends or beloved, agape toy in the Greek. A sincere love for his recipients, which is going to make sense in a minute when we talk about the hard news of what all this represents today. I also want to point out that three times in our text we saw the word promise. You see it there in verse uh, 4, you see it in verse 9, and you see it again down in verse 13. And the promise is the central point of this entire passage. And what is it that God promises us? That he is coming again. Where we launch into this little message this morning is right here in verses 3 and 4 where we have to admit that there are a lot of people who don't believe that God's promise is going to come true. That God's promise of the Lord Jesus coming back is actually true. There are lots of people who don't believe this. Peter calls these people scoffers, verse 3. Other translations you might be using use the word mockers. What do scoffers do? They scoff. The word is a, in the Greek is a connotation of trifling, making fun of. It's, it's not in lightness, it's in ridicule. And there are people all around us that if they knew today we were taking 30 minutes or so to just expound on the reality of Christ's return, they would scoff. They would say, come on, are you kidding me? That's not going to happen. In our vernacular, it would be like saying, yeah, right. I watch ESPN sometimes, and they've got this little section called, come on, man. <laughs> and you know what that's about. That's like, come on, are you, are you kidding me? That's the vernacular of what Peter is saying. Incredulity. People listening to a statement and saying, there's no way that that could happen. And I have to ask myself, why do people scoff at God's promises? Why do they mock and ridicule the truth? The answer is actually here in verse 3, and I want you to see it. If you're taking notes, I'd like, you to, I'd like to suggest that the biggest reason people don't believe is to protect their evil behaviors and lifestyles. The reason why people choose not to believe is not because it doesn't make sense, not because there's not verification in so many other levels, but because if I say I believe, something's going to change in my life. 
I've spoken to people that had the courage to admit to me that the reason they would not confess that there is a God, a personal God that desires a personal relationship with us is because the moment they acknowledge that, they become accountable to that. And there's some of us, even sitting here this morning, who might be feeling the very same thing. What does it mean to really be all in for God, you might be wondering. And you're holding back this morning because to be all in for God is going to mean making changes in your life, the things that he wants to do different in your life. And all that seems so scary and so uh, intimidating to us. And so for many people, and I'm not talking about believers, I'm talking about unbelievers now, I believe that many people simply bolster, to bolster their unbelief, they're going to ridicule us for what we believe. Keep in mind, If someone is really mocking your belief in Jesus, it's probably because he or she is really trying to just bolster their own unbelief. And by the way, it takes a lot of work to do that. There's so much evidence of God and so much evidence of his work and you and I are signposts where we ought to be out in the world and when people watch us, see us, interact with us, there should be a sense of, ah, something needs to change in my life. And so often we blend into culture, we blend into all the stuff around us and we are mute and we are not bold and we don't stand out as salt and light. And much to the reality of what we're speaking of this morning, people don't really have any reason to bolster their unbelief. But when we become bold and encouraging in our faith, and I'm not talking about ranting on people, I'm talking about just living out in the open as a Christ follower. And I'm inviting you to do that this morning. Now, here's why, here's why they do this, and, and this is the method or the methodology behind their, their protest. They hedge their bet on this one fact. If you're taking notes, I want you to see this. The day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. This is how they hedge their entire bet. It's a huge risk when you decide that the reason for something not happening or won't happen is because it hasn't happened yet. That's like saying, well, I don't believe in death because I haven't died yet. (laughs) Hello, that's going to change one day. We live on the Hayward Fault. In fact, we're sitting in a place right now. (laughs) You know where I'm going with this right now. Did you know the USGS says that there is a 99% chance in the next 30 years of a 6.7 magnitude earthquake in this area? 99% chance. And I know because of that reality, we've all got our preparations done, right? (laughs) No. And we kind of smile and we jest at that and like, oh, come on, you know. But we realize if that happened today, I wouldn't be ready, really. I mean, yeah, I've got like eight water bottles at my house on the shelf in the garage, and I've got some backpacking meals that I could draw from. You know, I'd be okay. I don't know about my family, but I'd be okay for a few days. (laughs) It's amazing to me how unprepared I am of something that is surely going to happen. Well, it's 30 years from now. Let's see. I'll be about 98 by then. No, no. No, no, that's not right. I'll be 88 by then. (laughs) Well, there's a good chance if it waits 30 years, I may not even be around. Who knows how long we're going to be around? And I'm just being facetious this morning. But isn't it true? We sort of put off. And now what if I went down to the USGS headquarters, wherever it is, in the Bay Area, and I said, you know, you guys are ridiculous. You're so ridiculous, you would put out a statistic like that to just scare everybody and make everybody totally afraid? You guys are stupid. And I just walk out the door. You know, there might be a reporter there saying, let's get this on 
you know, video or something to show everybody on the 6 o'clock news that it's not the USGS is stupid. That guy is stupid because he's ranting on something that is very likely to happen. Now, let's just draw the analogy to who we are as Christ followers. Do we not know from Scripture in the many references all through the Scripture that not only did Jesus come a first time for salvation, but that he's coming back to judge the world? How many believe that this morning? Okay, most of us believe that. That was not a trick question when I asked you to raise your hand. Most of us believe that. And there may be some of us that don't. And the reality is some of us act like we don't believe that. Because we're not really living for Christ. We're not really living out and open. And we're not challenging people. And we're not encouraging them. So I know a lot of us feel immediately intimidated. And here's the next movement of the message this morning. Is that even though we feel intimidated by a world that says you guys are off your rocker by believing that Jesus is coming back, even though we feel intimidated, can I encourage you that we shouldn't feel intimidated around people who don't believe that the promise of Christ's return is coming, that we we not feel intimidated? And here's what we need to do. If you're taking notes, here's, here's the antidote for not feeling intimidated. Number one, we should hold on to what the scriptures have told us. We go back to verses one and two, and here again, dear friends, this is now my second letter. I want to stimulate a wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. You know what those first two verses are about? Would you trust the scripture? Would you trust God's word? Would you invest your life into the reality of what God's word is saying and not be looking at God's word through the lens of what what our culture says or what our world says, but would you reverse that and look at culture in our world through the lens of scripture I mean beloved this is, this is for you and me I don't know how many times I meet people that I consider to be followers of Christ who are just doing the opposite they're interpreting scripture by the culture and we say well I don't know if the scripture is really valid anymore because look at what's happening in our culture what? The scripture is true all the time and it's, it's the measurement that we come to when we decide values, morals, ethics, history, future, whatever God has to say. And so Christians need to, first of all, we're not intimidated because we need to hold on to what, what the scriptures have, have taught us. And I need to be reminded of this all the time. How are we reminded? By daily reading God's word. Are you daily reading God's word, beloved? Are you doing that? And you notice I'm using the word beloved like Peter here. He's saying, he's putting his arms around his his listener and he's saying, would you trust what God's word has to say? How can you trust it? By staying in it. Read it. Meditate on it. Read it together as a family. Read it together as a husband and wife. Read it together with your kids. Read it. Post it on the doorstep. Put, Put it everywhere you can so that you can be reminded you know, lately I've been walking into rooms in my house and I can't remember why I went in those rooms. I don't know. It's just my age, I guess. Talking a little bit about age this morning. It's just weird. It's so frustrating. I get up with a conviction. Okay, I'm going to go do this. And I get into this room and I go, what am I doing in here? It's so weird. And I'm ashamed to go back outside and tell Carla, I can't remember why I went in that room. So I just stay back there for like ever. I just finally, and then I just make something up. Yeah, I went and, you know, did something. And so... It's so weird. I need reminders. And we need reminders every day. So that's the first thing. We need to just hold on to what the scriptures have taught us. Here's the second thing. We should lovingly point out a few things to those that scoff. Now, 
I say lovingly, and that's what Peter's doing here. He's saying, let's do this lovingly. This is not ranting and raving. Let's do this lovingly. Number one, if we can, let's point out that they may be forgetting something, verses five through seven. The flood, we read here, is a real example of God's judgment on wickedness. Now, if you're a lawyer, if you're an attorney here, you would call this, you might call this the language of precedent. We should not forego what God has said because we know that in the past God judged the world through water, verse 7, and now he's going to do it, or eventually he's going to do it through fire. The precedent of water. You know, and if you do study on this, by the way, we don't have, a lot, we don't have enough time, we don't have really any time to go into this, but I would challenge you, because some of you think, ah, the flood, that's a myth. I know some of you think that way. There it is in Genesis 6. Here it is in first, Second Peter 3. And we read scripture and we go, ah, it's a myth. But you know, if you look at the scholars, the scientists, nobody disagrees with the fact that there was a worldwide something. After age, ice ages, maybe after the last ice age, water over much of the earth. And sometimes, even in modern day, just in the last few years, you, you see great scholarship on this where people are sort of intrigued by this idea of a Genesis flood. But the reason why I think they come to the edge, you know, they see the evidence everywhere. And you can look at it scientifically. I mean, the fossil record, giant fossil graveyards above sea level where sea creatures lived, uh, where, you know, thousands of miles from the sea. Now, how do you explain that? Great sedimentary flows which instantly wiped out uh, giant masses of organisms and creatures. And that's just scientific. You can read that. And scientists will come to the edge of it and say, well, it might have been a partial uh, water of the whole earth or maybe a giant deluge, but probably not the entire earth at one time. I think it's coming close to the edge and realizing, wow, if I admit to what the scripture says, if I take the scripture and use that as a lens to what I see, where modern science says that, that we interpret the past by what we see today, biblicists say we interpret today by what we see in the past. And what the Bible tells us is true. So I think we come to the edge, but we can't admit to it because to admit to it is what? To put ourselves into accountability with a loving, almighty God. And so you can be really smart up here and then just whip, close the door. I'm not going to go there because I don't want to acknowledge a supernatural being, a personal supernatural being who's bringing judgment on this world. Now look at verse 5. It says that not only do they forget, they may be forgetting something, but notice the, the little descriptive there, verse five. They deliberately forget. Oh, this is actually deciding to forget. Now that's different than, I wanna go do something in a room, walk in the room, can't remember why I'm there. Deliberate forgetting is saying, I'm choosing not to remember this. And we're pushing God out all the time. It's like the person that says, don't confuse me with the facts, my what? My mind is already you never heard that expression before? <laughs> really? <laughs> don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's already made up. And so there are people out there in the world saying, don't tell me that God judged the world once and that he's coming to judge it again. I've already made up my mind. God loves everybody and there's no judgment at all. That's a lie. God loves people, but there is a judgment. The judgment's coming, the Bible says. So this points to our depravity and our need for God's grace to convert our hearts. Otherwise, we decide to forget what we really, even intuitively, know is true. 
We know there's a God that loves us. Romans 1 says that God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen through what he has made so that all men are without what? Excuse. If you're sitting here today going, ah, you know, I just, there's not enough proof. And, uh, I'm, a, I'm a scientific mind. I really can't go there. Mm, no, mm. You know, you just, you're banking yourself into a corner where you don't realize that God has over and over come to you and those friends out there that are protesting loudly, God has already spoken into their hearts about his creation, about his judgment, about his love, about how great and awesome he is, but we push it out of our minds. We deliberately choose to forget. We become scoffers, many people do. And I love verse 9 which we will get to now, that reminds us that time, watch this, if you're taking notes, time doesn't actually work against the promise, it actually works for the promise. People use the argument, look at how much time has gone by, you expect me to believe all this as a means of somehow poking a hole in God's promise? Peter makes it clear that time is our friend when it comes to judgment. How is time a friend? Because, look at verse 15, in fact, we'll jump back up to verse 9. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means what? Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means what? Salvation. You know why time is on our side? Time is on our side because more people can be saved. God's not giving us time so that we can buy another toy to play with for a few more years. God's giving us more time so that we can invest in kingdom work. How much time do you have left? (laughs) Well, nobody knows. Nobody knows. We might think we have 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, whatever. We don't know how much time we have. And we should be using every moment. We should be redeeming the time, like Ephesians 4 says. We should be using every moment we have to leverage the kingdom work. And by the way, Peter draws from the Old Testament Psalter here from Psalm 90. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by or like a watch in the night. Isn't that amazing? I mean, so your loved one died, you know, 20 years ago? That was like a couple of seconds. I'm not demeaning the fact that some of us are just in terrible grief today because of the loss of a loved one. And we, when will we see them again? If they knew Christ, will we see them, you know, when will we see them? And we just yearn to be with them. And I think of my parents and I think of other loved ones and many dear brothers and sisters of our church family that have gone on to be with the Lord. And I think about that. And in God's eyes... It's just a split second. And God's saying, the reason I'm being patient is because it means salvation for someone else. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. I love Ezekiel 28, excuse me, Ezekiel 18, uh, 23 18.23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? This is the heart of God. God's not just anxiously waiting to come crush and bring judgment on people. His patience means salvation. Here's the third thing we should try to lovingly tell our scoffing friends. Not only is that they sometimes forget, not only is time our friend, not our enemy, but number three, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. It comes like a thief, verse 10 says. Jesus' return is imminent. It means at any moment. There's no sign we're waiting for. Nothing that should pre, uh, uh, um, 
require anything of God to do before, he, before his son comes back. Now, the Bible tells us we don't know the hour of the day, but we should be watching and waiting in ex- expectation and anticipation. They forget certain things. Time is our friend. The day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. Now, going back here, we should hold on to what the scriptures have told us. We should point out a few things if we get the chance. Now, here's a third thing and the last thing we're going to just quickly put in some of this content. We should be the kind of people that God can use to reach others for him. This is where it really comes down to where the rubber meets the road. What kind of people should we be? Well, we should be a people who live holy and godly lives, Peter tells us, verse 11, verse 14, verse 17. Be on your guard. Don't be carried away by the error of lawless men. Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. While everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? We ought to live holy and godly lives. Those three verses zero in on the fact that you and I have a reality of living a holy and godly life, which means... Number one, we separate from anything that is sinful or ungodly in our lives. It is not a mark of the modern evangelical church to separate from sin. It's just not a mark anymore. It's just not. Every sin you find in the culture is prevalent in the church. Why? Because we have gone soft on sin. I just let that sink in for just a second. I'm not saying we should become legalists, and some people do that. They, they hold on to one little point of their, quote, righteousness, and they want everybody else to be just like them, and if you're not, you're judged, and you're out, and all that. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying our standard should be higher than the world, shouldn't it? Our values, our morals, our commitments should be greater and display a holiness and righteousness that comes from God. It's not anything we do either, is it? We separate from anything sinful. Number two, we engage in a life of good works and worship. It's not the things that we don't do. It's also the things that we do. We are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10 says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Living godly is saying no to sin, and it's saying yes to a lot of beautiful things in our lives. Thirdly, we pursue this kind of life with great effort, verse 14. I'm struck by this word effort here, make every effort to be found spotless. Uh, Sometimes the Christian life in living this way is a bit of a grind. It's uphill, it's not easy, it's against the current. And if you don't feel against the current in your life in any area of your life, I don't know what that means. But I don't think it's a good thing. There should be a sense of why, why do I just feel like I'm always going against the current? I keep loving people. I keep giving my life to people. I keep sharing my life and it gets messy. But man, I feel like I'm just against the current. And if we don't feel that way, pray that God would give us a spirit in this place to live such radically true lives to the gospel. And believe, you pray for me the same way I should pray for you. None of us have arrived. All of us can grow in this area. Can we not? We pursue this kind of life with great effort. And and fourthly, we guard ourselves against error so we don't fall down. He talks about not losing our secure position. That's not a statement of salvation. It's the idea of confidence. 
A lot of us have lost our confidence because we're not living distinctively godly lives. And there's no confidence in us. We, we come in here with our heads down. We come in realizing that our sin is wrong, but we don't want to change. We don't want to repent. This would be a great morning for some of us to say, God, I'm so sick of living for this world. And just repent. It's a gift. God's given it to you this morning. We should be a kind of people who live holy and godly lives. Secondly, we should be a people who look forward to Christ's return and our eternal home. You know, I've been convicted about this, just thinking about this. and I don't think about this nearly enough. I mean, do I think about the fact that Christ could come, home, come back today or that I could be at home with the Lord today? I need to think about that. And so I'm just doing some things in my own life to remind myself daily of this and try my best to remind someone else daily of this too. Try it. Keep it in front of your mind. The Lord's coming back. We're soon to go to be with the Lord. Praise God. We should be a people who share the gospel with anyone we can. Verse 12. Notice that we can speed the coming of this day. How? How do we speed the coming of the Lord? By laboring in the vineyard. You know why? Because God has his elect... And when the last one of his elect is saved, boom, that's it. And there's no way to calculate who that is or how that's going to be, but we can speed his coming by laboring in his, in his vineyard. That's, that's awesome to think about. Every time you share Christ with somebody, you're planting a seed where one day they may come to Christ, and who knows if that's not the person that God's waited for, that his patience means salvation for that one, and boom, psh, that's amazing. And we should be people who are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this book has been about. Are we growing? I'm not talking about facts. I'm talking about intimacy with the Lord. You know, a lot of us, I, I was out of town last weekend. I was visiting my sister out of state and uh, went to a little church, a little country church. And I came in and, and sat with them. They're, they're a beautiful family. Had a wonderful time. And I was just thinking, it's so beautiful that God's people meet everywhere, you know? But so many of us come into church as a routine. You might be here today because it's Sunday morning at 9.30. Where else would you be? And you got friends here that you want to see and there are people in your life and you got up this morning and listened to the news and you had a little breakfast and you sauntered off, got in your car and you showed up here without really any expectation whatsoever of really meeting with God. It's just a routine that we go through. And I'm praying that it will never be routine for any of us, ever again. That we will come in and be in the presence of Almighty God when we gather as his people. And we will yearn and pray that the Spirit of God would put the preacher aside and speak with such power and anointing that our hearts would be rent. That we would be so changed that maybe we couldn't even leave this place without dealing with some big issues in our lives. Go to our prayer room, write a prayer request, stick it in the wall. Tell a friend of something you're struggling with. Be open. Have some disclosure in your life. And stop playing church. I'm not trying to be uh, uh, harsh. 
I, I just lay it on my heart as I pray through this, as I thought about this yesterday. So many of us are in a routine and God wants to break our routine. You know, sometimes he does that with trials and adversity and he's sort of nudging us. Are you listening to me? Are you hearing me? Are you going to get serious with me? We just keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. This morning it's time to say, Jesus, if God's grace is pounding at your heart's door and saying, would you, would you let me have fellowship with you? I love you with an everlasting love. You may have been away from me forever. You may have come to me as a child and truly loved me, but you have not walked with me. And some of us have walked away in our adult lives. And we don't have that fire and that hunger in our hearts. And I'm not expecting that this message will turn that around, but if by God's Spirit He's speaking to you, get before Him this week. Get on your knees before Him. Let His Word wash over your heart. Repent of anything you know needs to be repented of and come to Him. He's a loving Father. And He will take us and He will build us. And His Son is coming soon. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for your people. And Lord, I am one of them. I don't stand as a judge. I'm a shepherd. And I cry out, Lord, that we as your people, Lord, would turn our hearts to you. That we would leave worldly things. That we would pursue you, Lord, with a new fervor, a new passion in our lives. And Lord, what do you want to do with neighborhood church, three crosses, what, what do you want to do in this place to change the culture that we are in? To remind the people of this community that the biggest thing they should be concerned about is not a 6.7 earthquake, but the return of Jesus Christ. So Lord, give us favor to do that. Give us grace to believe that. I ask this in Jesus' name. Now as your heads are bowed, if you this morning come to a place in your life where you know you need a Savior.